Hello and welcome to The Recapables Billions, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. I am The Ringer's resident TV enthusiast, Allison Herman, and joining me in the studio in New York City, the setting of Billions and also The Ringer's East Coast Bureau, it is Miles Surrey, our resident Billions recapper. How are you doing, Miles? I'm good, and I'm just hoping to end this pod with both my arms intact. It's not a great time to be back channeling with the Russians right now. You'd own him, he'd lose the gig, you'd have nothing. So, you go through me, or don't go at all. (laughs) So, this is the moment you lead with your chest, finally. And in front of another man. Then, fuck you. No, fuck you. Before we get started, I would like to thank our loyal Recapables listeners for putting up with this slight delay. We just needed some time to process the John Malkovich of it all. And so this is coming to you a little later. We're recording on Monday. I think it'll be up later today. But just thank you for bearing with us in the meantime. And without further ado, I should probably talk about what happened. So... Here is your 42-second recap of everything that happened in the ninth episode of the third season of Billions, also known as Icebreaker. Axe begins his funding raise, but it turns out that most legit finance operations aren't willing to hand out the kind of money Axe wants as fast as he wants it. So he turns to Grigor Andalov, a Russian oligarch who issues veiled death threats towards his children and also looks like John Malkovich. But Axe doesn't mind, even if Taylor totally does. And he seals the deal with an assist from Todd Krakow, a surprise Kevin Durant cameo, and a Chekhov's warning not to lose Andalov's money or else. Meanwhile, Chuck gets back on the side of the Angels by going from prosecuting Jose Lugo to wanting to prosecute the guards who almost definitely killed him in custody. Jock Jeffcoat nips the prosecution in the bud before it can even begin with some veiled eugenics, setting Chuck and Wendy on the warpath. Replacement antagonist found. That's a lot. That's a lot of pivoting, a lot of table setting, a lot of new uh, new blood in the mix. Miles, what did you think of this episode? I thought it was a fun table setter. You know, I think they uh, the show needed some time to set up Chuck and Axe with their own uh, adversaries for mini arcs. And, you know, we've had Clancy Brown's uh, Jock Jeff coat around since uh, the beginning of the season, but he's sort of been on the periphery of the story, and now he's right in the center of it. And then we've got... John Malkovich's uh, Grieger Andalov. And when you combine Clancy Brown and John Malkovich as your seedy mini-arc villains, you know you're doing a show well. And if nothing else, I'm just excited to see how Chuck and Axe, you know, weasel out of these situations and how many people get stuck in the crossfires. I mean, we've known John Malkovich is coming for a long time. Loyal listeners of this podcast know that we personally have been anticipating John Malkovich's entrance for a long time. So just really quickly, how did you think Andalov measured up to your expectations? I think he was uh, pretty good. I think it got a little repetitive at the end with the veiled threats and a lot of metaphors between him and Axe. They apparently can't just have a regular discussion, but then again, no one in Billions can. Um, But I I thought it was pretty good. I'm curious to see um, what happens when Axe inevitably loses some of Grigor's money, because if this episode made anything clear, it's that. Do you think he's going to lose some of the money? Whatever hmm, would make you think that. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's particularly funny that Wags insists that Axe is uh, never wrong when in season one he lost a billion dollars, even when Mafi and some of the other uh, finance bros told him this is a bad play. So 
Axe does make mistakes with money. And the last time we saw him act emotionally, which Wag says is a selling point, was a little a little venture called Ice Juice, which did not turn out well for literally anyone who was involved in it. So we'll talk about Wags later, but I think his judgment might, might be a little off there. I also, before we get to our awards, wanted to spend maybe a few seconds talking about Jock Jeffcoat, because to me, this gets into sort of uncomfortable territory for billions, where... They're kind of, you can sort of tell that the writers, much like us ourselves, are kind of on Chuck and Sacker's side here. They clearly empathize with Jose Lugo. There are some very clear parallels between Jose Lugo's death in custody at the hands of some guards, one of whom, remember, he killed, and that of Freddie Gray, an inmate in Baltimore, whose death resulted in a lot of upheaval. It's sort of interesting to see Billions dip its toe into moral black and white or sort of politically principled positions when Chuck has been shown over and over again to be a a pretty totally unprincipled guy. So I guess I was just curious how you thought Billions is going to handle that balance of actually having some some moral clarity when the whole show is about a bunch of really unlikable people doing damage to one another. Yeah, that's a good point, especially because, you know, this episode was Wendy sort of reconciling with her own guilt in in a small way by uh, selling her Maserati and donating what a few thousand dollars to Axe is questionable. 250, just a few. Oh, oh just a few thousand, yeah. Just Pocket a quarter change. million, yeah. yeah. No problem. Uh, to Axe's uh, questionable charitable fund? I think it's legit. It's is, just, is it legit? Just the guy who heads it is a, a bit of a questionable character. Yeah. I mean, he's also... the. The stated purpose of the foundation is a psychological mandate for the employees of Axe Capital. Mm -hmm. So I do think it does good work, but the reason for its existence is less than pure. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Billions is towing a bit of a tricky line by having Axe go up against basically the show's weird non Keebler version of Jeff Sessions mixed with other sort of Trumpian characteristics. And I think... um, I, I do think that maybe this is sort of a, a temporary uh, salve for Billions because you've got uh, Chuck now going back to the legal offices perhaps permanently. He's no longer interested in a gubernatorial race or doing anything um, political. So maybe this is going to be the last instance of having sort of these Trumpian undertones with other characters, as Wendy says, once he assassinates that motherfucker. That's a great quote, which I'm sure we will address later. I also think it it led me to realize that our beloved colleague Mallory Rubin has called me the ringer's resident Chuck Rhodes apologist. (laughs) I think this is part of it because as odious as Chuck is personally, I think he has good theoretical principles because he is technically a Democrat. And I think it says something interesting about Chuck's character that it's almost like the further he is away from someone— the easier it is for him to have the quote-unquote right take on it or to have his ethics intact. So he knows as a good New York liberal that police brutality is wrong and that an inmate like Jose Lugo deserves protection by the law, even if he's been on the wrong side of it. Whereas in his own life, he's totally willing to plant evidence and frame people in the name of personal grudges. So I think there's an interesting dichotomy there going on with Chuck's characters. But, uh, Let's not dwell on the good and billions for too long. <laughs> it's time to get to our first award, our favorite award, which is the most scarring moment in any given week. So take us away. 
Sure. So mine is uh, John Malkovich. Sorry, I, I'm just going to keep calling him John Malkovich instead of Grigor, apparently. But uh, Grigor's, uh, quote, funny story involving mold wine and ending with his character raping a, uh, a woman and potentially leaving her child an orphan. It's unclear exactly what happened to her, but he says that he, quote, left her for the soldiers. So we don't know what's happening there, but that was just a very disturbing affirmation that uh, Malkovich's character is just going to destroy lives without thinking twice about it. And I think, you know, if the one-armed coffee vendor from the beginning of the episode, who, fun fact, plays a KGB officer on FX's The Americans, uh, that would be the actor Lev Gorn. Um, If that wasn't enough of a hint, obviously this guy's bad news and Axe should not be um, taking any of his money. So this is a person we meet for the first time, as you wrote in your recap, which you can read on TheRinger.com, a wonderful website, bodily checking someone into the wall of an ice rink. He is physically aggressive. He's going up against professional athletes. He is hardened. We learned that he is an ex-con. He has spent time in jail. So he's climbed to the top of the world, but he knows how to get his hands dirty, much like Bobby X Axelrod. And I believe it's Taylor who says he's definitely like a criminal and Axe is getting into bed with him because he's desperate as Wag says he's fighting for his life and basically for reasons of ego he wants to do this right I mean it helps him to establish a reputation on the street and recover from his recent trial but it doesn't seem like he necessarily needs Grigor's money as much as he thinks he needs it but he's ignoring some pretty obvious warning signs. And this is maybe the second or third menacing one-on-one conversation we've seen them have where Andalov drops various hints that he's a less than savory person. But basically, this is, I don't even know if you would call it foreshadowing. It's just like a giant all-encompassing shadow that blacks out the screen that this guy is just... I don't think Axe is going to get out of this or Axe Capital maybe wholly intact, but that's a very scarring moment. I think my scarring moment is a little more benign. It's in the episode's <laughs> kind of delightful C plot where we get back into the testosterone fueled hijinks at Axe Capital, which is what I've been saying I want for several weeks. And this really did not disappoint, which uh, Dollar Bill's dollar goes missing, which We thought Dollar Bill's name was just because he's so cheap that he would do anything for a dollar, but it turns out he has an actual lucky Dollar Bill. Did you ever notice it before, by the way, on his desk? I just think there's a lot of other things about Dollar (laughs) Bill that I've been noticing, like the fact that he has two families or the fact that he's suddenly hanging out with Ari Spiros. Or the fact that he's also pastored him on the Americans with a wig. that, That fact has seriously bothered me to my core for months. Well, especially this week, now that they're just doubling down on this Americans crossover. Maybe mm-hmm. they share a casting agent? I don't know. Brian Koppelman or David Levine, if you were if you were listening to this podcast, please let us know. <laughs> Are you fans of the Americans? What's your connect there? But anyway, his dollar bill goes missing, and so initially, when he's basically shaking down and bullying everyone around him to see if he can find it, including poor, sweet, innocent Ben Kim, who we will get to later. He has some good moments this week he upends what's that guy's name again he's just uh rudy yes his name is rudy i don't remember his name because he is the drip of a trader who we eventually learn is dead last in his earnings he's not the kind of alpha male that we expect out of the the floor traders he's kind of less of an alpha male than the female trader that we meet i think for the first time this week yeah bonnie i think she she must be a newcomer 
Well, she mentions in this episode why Axe hired her, which is the kind of line that you give to someone when you're introducing them into mm-hmm. the ensemble. But she clearly shows that she can come out of this with more dignity than Rudy did because when Dollar Bill upends his man purse, he finds an actual fleshlight, which, you know, there have been many HR violations committed on the trading floor of Axe Capital. Someone was just called a six-figure pants shitter a few, <laughs> just a few weeks ago, and I somehow think this has leapt instantly to the top of the list. And also later I mentioned uh, Ben Kim. Dollar Bill... You know, not always the nicest person, but I think we have a certain level of affection for him. But I think it was really tested when he basically says a bunch of vaguely racist things towards Ben Kim because he thinks Ben Kim stole the dollar bill for the luck. And to Ben Kim's credit, he did stand up for himself, which is probably a billion's first. I mean, they certainly respond to it. He gets a round of applause for a pretty minimal level of aggression. I think he just says, like, if you keep doing that, we're We're going to have have a problem. problem. (laughs) (laughs) Which is maybe the least assertive thing anyone on Billions has said ever. Yet for Ben Kim, Ben Fudgy the Whale Kim, (laughs) Ben Precious Flower Kim is such a moment of personal growth for him. So I'm proud of him, but that really did not reflect well on Dollar Bill or my estimation of him, even though he's had a pretty good few weeks in the billions verse. But while we're on the subject of characters that are just yelling at each other all the time, (laughs) we should move on to best quotes, which as always, there were many candidates for, but which was your favorite? So my favorite was when Wendy and Chuck are talking after a very intense dinner with Lonnie she says, it's not enough to resist or not resist Jock anymore. You have to assassinate this motherfucker. And to which Chuck responds, yeah, I know. And that's why I'm sitting here in the dark like an assassin. Um, Brooklyn Heights, famous <laughs> den of <laughs> international criminals. So many assassins and brownstones. Yeah, uh, so Jock Jeffcoat sucks. <laughs> I, think <we> can, <laughs> I think we can say that now. I mean, he's always been vaguely awful, even just the fact that he was urging this Jose Lugo prosecution, which... Chuck did not want to do, Sacker did not want to do, they went along with because, again, they are less than totally principled. Mm-hmm. But at least they they felt some remorse about it, and at least they were under some duress. That means Chuck feels guilty about Jose Lugo's death in custody, but of course he would not be pr- being prosecuted in, in custody in the first place if it were not for Jock Jeffcoat. And then when they bring up the basic concept of, you know, someone died, maybe we should investigate and see that this was almost certainly a murder for retribution and not a normal case of a, or not that there's ever a normal case of an inmate dying in custody, but this was probably not unavoidable, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Coates' response to that, because they bring up the Hammurabi code, essentially an eye for an eye, is that Hammurabi had different codes for different castes of society because not all lives are equal and some are worth more than others. And people who volunteer in service to their country, i.e. work as a prison guard, are worth more than drug dealers who are of negligible worth to society, which is just... So anti-humanist, so not even veiled racist, given the last few weeks of current events in our country and given it's a weird, weirdly good time or not good timing, but weirdly uncanny timing that we've recently seen so many so much national rhetoric about gang members and their relative worth as a very obvious cover for certain other unsavory ideas. And now we're getting this on billions. Billions always has its finger on the pulse, but... (laughs) It has been interesting to see this show like dabble in national politics through the Jock Jeffcoat character 
and him as a stand-in for basically all of Trumpism. And I just thought that was so repugnant. Everyone on Billions is kind of charmingly repugnant because most of the time, with certain exceptions, like the deportation we saw, it's within this rarefied circle, and it's a bunch of people with money hurting other people with a lot of money. But this was just a really gross example of someone picking on the defenseless, I thought. Yeah, I mean, Jock has no redeemable qualities other than, like, a comically strange name and and a weirdly soothing Southern drawl, but every other word he says is menacing anyway, so it's not all that pleasant. I think that that's, again, why I think... Um, you know, he's obviously he's just a temporary character between Chuck and Axe's continuing Shakespearean feud. So I think that um, what we're going to see, whatever Axe or sorry, whatever Chuck does, I think will phase him out of the story completely. Because I also think it is like Billions towing this political line has been interesting and it has been oddly prescient at times. But I, I think it is just temporary. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that Billions likes to deal with antiheroes and people who aren't necessarily cut and dry, which makes it a richer kind of conflict. Like the Axe Chuck, there are reasons to dislike both, but there are also reasons to root for both. So the fact that we are taught to dislike Jack Jeffcoat so strongly both makes it very satisfying in the short term, but also means I think you're right. There's not necessarily a lot of long-term potential for this character. He's pretty clearly going to be out of the frame, if only because I think Clancy Brown has other <laughs> delightfully charming Lots gigs. of commitments. <laughs> I would also like to say that I did not have time to look up the specific song, but I was listening to the lyrics while I was re-watching the beginning of the episode just before we started recording, and when they're on Jock Jeffcoat's ranch, which is the opening scene of this episode. They are shooting, shooting coyotes. Shooting coyotes because they're going after Jack Jeffcoat's calves. The song that is playing is an ode to the Confederate flag. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just, a, just a little thing to keep in mind. My vote for best quote was when Axe is originally talking to an ex-oligarch who now has a shitty coffee cart in Midtown Manhattan. Uh basically just sussing out Andalov and what he should do and how ruthless he is. And the answer, of course, is very. The Russian exile says with one arm, I dream to own a hot dog cart one day. And Axe hands him a fistful of cash, which is not even the size of a dollar bill duffel bag full of cash. So he really did not bargain well out of this one. Axe says, your dream just came true. Next time, dream bigger. Always one to punch up. Our, our Bobby Axe Axelrod. Um, I did want to take this segment because a typical recipient of our best quote award is Wags. Wags has a, a really good subplot this week, but I don't think it's a typical subplot for him. So would you like to take over the duties of describing what exactly Wags got up to this week and why it was so interesting in the context of his character? Sure. So um, Taylor approaches Wags and they say that they think that Axe's um, Axe wanting to take Grieger's money is a bad idea, which you know agreed. Well, um, they ask, "What do you do with Axe's wrong?" Right. And Wags responds, "Axe is never wrong, but what if he's wrong?" And so Wags takes Taylor to uh, an undisclosed mansion, probably in upstate New York somewhere. I'm assuming, like a very affluent part of Westchester. And I was going to go for Connecticut. That because, were, you know what that you know, that makes more Westport sense. and all that. Yep. But. Yep. Um, and, um, he tells her the story of how Axe talked him out of marrying, 
um, his ex-wife. And you know, Wag's like, who would even have the balls to do that? You know, uh, tell someone not to marry someone. And he uh, explains that um, his ex-wife was someone who liked to uh, spontaneously dance sometimes. And that um, if uh, she caught him recording her, she would have this brief fit of rage that... Um, Seems to turn Wags on a bit. and A bit? Uh, just, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> the less said, the better. And um, he says, basically, and what Axe knew was that the dancing ends and the flash of rage turns into long, endless nights of it. Very sweet, right? Like, we're not used to seeing Wags, and I wouldn't quite call it emotionally vulnerable, but even just emotionally sincere, just hearing him talk about something about his past that's not, like, a veiled reference to having some unmentionable sex act with a prostitute in some form of illegal substance. You know, it's it's interesting to see that side of him. Although I would like to question his judgment because essentially what he's saying is I was so in the thick of the emotion that I was blind to the larger consequence and the risk of what I was entering into. But then he turns around and tells Taylor, you need to have some empathy with what Axe is doing right now because you may not be a very emotional person, but Axe is acting out of emotion. Whereas I think Taylor in this situation is being to Axe what Axe was then to Wags. Taylor is saying, you know, if you look at this logically, this is not a good idea. And you're so caught up in your ego and pride and various other universal attributes of every male character on this show. And you're not acting with a clear head and in your own best interest. So as much as I appreciate Wags' loyalty and as much sympathy I have for his first marriage and how it didn't succeed I don't really think he's I think his heart is in the right place I don't think his head is on this one would you agree I would agree I mean I think that Wags um with with all his excess of pills and women he's a pretty logical guy when it comes to business but when it comes to acts he just has a certain bias because of all that acts has done for him because um he also he's previously talked about how acts got him out of, uh, was it Goldman Sachs, Sachs before? I thought it was Lehman Brothers, Oh, no, right? yes. It was Lehman Brothers and how, you know, Axe got him out just in the nick of time before he could have lost it all. So he's obviously very indebted to Axe, and that means that, you know, even if, as Taylor suggests, Axe is going about this totally the wrong way, he's going to back his man, for better or worse, which is, again, the sort of emotional decision. Almost certainly worse. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but in the meantime, while we're waiting for that Andalov play to go way south, let's go on to a lighter subject, which would be the pop culture reference of the week, of which there were, as always, many, many candidates. What was yours? So uh, mine was basically what Axe and Danny Strong's Todd Krakow, a.k.a. the Treasury Secretary, a.k.a. smaller t- Steve Mnuchin, um, have each other saved in their phones. Axe saves Todd Krakow as Murasan, which is a reference to George Murasan, the tallest player in the NBA, because Todd is really short. And then Todd has Axe saved as Bullet because Damian Lewis looks a lot like Steve McQueen. Pretty self-explanatory, but I love that, once again, everyone in the Billings verse just has an endless vault of pop culture that they can somehow store in their minds in addition to all the finance legalese and stuff. Yeah, as a dutiful and good and very qualified employee of the ringer.com, a sports <laughs> website, I definitely had to Google the Morrison reference. So please just hop into my mentions and yell at my ignorance, but just I'm putting it right out there. Did not get that at first, but I do appreciate it now that it has been explained to me. So thank you, Miles. My 
nomination was that we haven't actually checked in on Connerty. So Connerty actually has a pretty good week after taking a giant, giant L last week. <laughs> so he gets to be a little smug around Sacker because Sacker's feeling really guilty and says that he's not going to give her an apology or absolution or an ass kicking. He's just going to be the bigger man and walk out of the room, which I thought was pretty nice of him. Or not nice, but aware of his what's good for him as opposed to what feels good in the short term. So I thought that was some growth on his part. But he lands another job. And in the most billions job interview in history, he gets a job as a special counsel for the FBI. Again, billions right on the political pulse. <laughs> but essentially by just knowing a Darren Aronofsky movie really well. <laughs> which... Again, I don't think FBI agents are super well versed in the plot of Pi, which is yeah. Are, did you not just use pop culture references to get this job? I mean, I did because my <laughs> job is discussing pop culture. My job is not being a lawyer for a government agency that presumably is too busy doing other things than to delve into Darren Aronofsky's back catalog when Mother comes out. I don't know. <laughs> that, that'll be the second round as a Mother dissection. I think Connerty liked Mother. I, just, I think he did. I think he prefers Black Swan, but as a follow-up, he's fine with Mother. I think he's one of those Mother was secretly about climate change, or not so secretly about climate change. It's not that veiled of a metaphor. But as he explains to his interviewer, Pi is not actually about someone who gains the secret uh, knowledge to the universe. It's someone who wanted that knowledge so badly that he drove himself crazy, and now he is, con- and now he has realized that he's actually better off without it. But that's a very convoluted metaphor for being like, <laughs> I'm not going to force you to fire me in a very public confrontation in our office. But I just really enjoyed that in the in the parallel universe that Billions occupies. This is how high level federal law enforcement vets its job candidates. And I also enjoyed a certain exchange earlier in the episode where Axe and Taylor just riff with each other with Bob Dylan quotes when Axe is explaining why he's deciding to take this risk and go in with Andalov. He was not busy born, is busy dying. And then later in the episode, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding comes into the soundtrack, which... What do we think the going rate on a Bob Dylan sample is, or a Bob Dylan needle drop is these days? Yeah, Billions has me thinking it's relatively cheap, just with how casually it's thrown out. I mean, Lazarus on Mad Men was the same price as Wendy's Maserati when it was used. <laughs> so I don't know. I can't. We're we're watching a show about money. I can't help but thinking about that when I hear a recognizable Bob Dylan song on a prestige TV soundtrack, but. I thought that was good, and I also thought this episode was a really interesting evolution of the Axe-Taylor relationship, which we've been forecasting for a while was going to turn adversarial. But in this case, is not directly, you know, you're squashing on my turf, you're getting rid of the Quant Project, which Taylor has now revived in secret, essentially. It's more understanding and more that they're at cross-purposes. I don't know. What was your read on that dynamic this episode? Yeah, I think it was probably more, more pronounced last week when Axe refused to have dinner with his kids because he needed to be the last person in the office and Taylor was still working, which is, a, you know, um, his kids are going to need therapy, semi-related, but... Um, not well, not as long as Lara has a say in it, as we saw last oh, week. Oh, true. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I think that with Taylor and Axe, um, you know, I think with what's going down with Grigor might be the last straw because the last we see of Taylor, they're about to leave the office just as Grigor's going in to sign the documents with a very suave turtleneck. Sorry, Which I just you to point shouted that out. out. Yep. It's very Jobsian. It is. And I, I do think that Obviously, they're starting their own quant project in secrecy, and I think what could end up happening, maybe just a season or two down the line, depending on how fast things go, is uh, Taylor could get their own firm uh, and directly compete with Axe based on what uh, they've learned. Well, at the pace that Billion's plot tends to go, I'm going to guess that's going to go sooner rather than later. So I could even see that being like a season finale. The break is finalized. But I guess what I'm seeing now is the break is going to be less of a hostile one and more of a I just need to leave to strike out on my own and establish my own name. But I did feel a little heartbroken when there's a little moment where Taylor is basically like, shouldn't you have a conversation before you make an incredibly risky decision like this? And Axe goes, there was a conversation. And Taylor, you can you can like see the twinge in their neck. And then they just go, I see, which I thought was a great piece of acting on Asia Kate Dillon's part. But I think it's going to be a little more complex than just a Oedipal. I need to kill my father situation. But on that note, why don't we go into the MVPs of the week? I don't think Axe is one of them, which we'll talk about. But, uh, yeah, who was your MVP? Um, so mine was Carndy, and just kind of touching on uh, what we just talked about, I think that, you know, this is a perfect place for Carndy to end up. I was a little worried that maybe he'd pull a Orrin Bach and go the corporate route, but it never really seemed his style. So I think FBI special counsel, perfect fit for um, what Sacker calls, like, his, you know, holy Connerdy style and I do think that this also sets him up as a potential foil for Chuck down the road because there's no way this is the last time Chuck gets into some legal troubles too. Yeah, a separate impartial government agency <laughs> where your new nemesis is going. This is why I was like, Chuck, why did you fire him? And the why'd you have thing, to spit on him? <laughs> like the last thing you want to do is piss off someone and then send them out into the world. But as Sacker points out, if Connerty were going for a corporate job interview, he'd be a lot drunker than she actually sees him. But I thought that was a good choice. My MVP would probably be you know, the sort of deputies of Axe Capital, one being Taylor, who <laughs> makes an oil p- or an uh, enviro pitch to an oil oligarch, which is a really unconventional form of fuck you. But as Axe correctly identifies, it is a fuck you. And Ben Kim, who stood up for himself. So Taylor obviously has the benefit of making the very obvious but nonetheless underobserved point that maybe doing this isn't the best game plan. And Ben Kim gets to be anti-racist and slap down Dollar Bill, who always needs a little bit of a a trim ego-wise. So I was kind of on their side. I actually didn't think this was an episode that was really huge on MVPs because everyone's compromised or digging in their heels or gearing up for some bigger fight. But I thought those were two smaller victories I really enjoyed. But there are much bigger losses than victories, which brings us to the LVP of the week. So who is yours? Uh, Mine's a bit smaller, but, you know, Rudy uh, bringing a a flashlight to work. um, Just not a good idea, Um, especially when his half-assed excuse for that was um, it was, you know, for a friend's gift, which... 
Also puts the question, why would you give your friend a flash a flashlight? <laughs> it's like a pretty big bet. I think that would be an acceptable bachelor party offering in the yeah, finance world. Yeah. But yeah, he also steals dollar dollar bills, dollar bill, because mm-hmm. he does want some of that luck. It's just what uh, dollar bill got the motive right, just not the actual perpetrator. But it obviously doesn't work. He gets yelled at in Wendy's office like he's in a principal's office or something. He's still doing badly in the trading. It didn't boost his luck. It got him in trouble with all his coworkers. Now everyone hates him. I don't really understand why Wags didn't just fire him right then, but I can't imagine that he's going to suddenly turn around his performance at this rate. So I agree. Definitely solid LVP candidate. Mine is just Axe. <laughs> Come on. Don't. Yeah. It's it's simple. He's he's going to lose some of that money and that's going to be very bad. I also think, you know, this is usually less of an issue on other films and TV shows where this happens. But in a world like Billions, where there's so many pop culture references, when you cast an actor as beloved and prolific as John Malkovich, it's going to be I feel like it's going to be legitimately a challenge for them to avoid making any John Malkovich reference in the future. Or maybe they're just going to say fuck it and just go all in and just pretend that this this Russian oligarch looks suspiciously like a well-regarded and liked <laughs> character actor. But yeah, I think Axe makes a pretty transparently dumb decision. He's been on this trajectory for a while. Obviously, the decision we saw him make last time was more of a personally bad decision, which is sacrificing his relationship with kids just to appear tougher at work than he actually is. I just think we're coming for a reckoning, and I think it'll be interesting when the show delivers that, not at the hands of a rivalry, but maybe from a source he isn't expecting or more to the point, at his own hands. Like, he's really being self-defeating right now and off his game, which we, which I think we've gotten little hints of all season, but this is the most self-defeating move of many that we have seen him make. So, for my brief look ahead, I think we can both agree that things are not going to go well for Hex and Andalus' nope. partnership. But, yeah, is there any specifics that you had for for how that might go down? Um, so I have a somewhat bold prediction, but I think that given Grigor's uh, propensity to just ruin people's lives if they screw with him, I think that once Axe inevitably loses some of his money, maybe somehow Lara Axelrod will be killed in the crossfires. I do, I think that's a little bold. I, I think it's a it's a bold prediction, and it's probably wrong. But it does feel like the show's angling for a Lara exit, just because um, I feel like with each season we're seeing a lot less of her. And I do think that um, even though it might not be the best approach, I mean, we just saw Deadpool two this weekend, and we saw how carelessly it killed off Deadpool's love interest Vanessa. Like, wow, spoiler! Oh, spoiler <laughs> alert for Deadpool spoiler two. Spoiler for this movie. Then, full disclosure: I despise with every ounce of my being, but I'm sure that Wags and Dollar Bill went to go see opening weekend. <laughs> oh, they definitely did. Um, but I, I do think that you know when you bring in a character like Grigor, um, you know, there's some kind of violent retribution is expected, not just like a, you know, financial hit or legal trouble, but like something serious, like the consequence of death. 
Yeah, I don't know if Lara will necessarily exit that way, but I do agree with you that I think she's probably on her way out. I think maybe it's something like Axe legitimately does endanger his family, and so maybe she finds an out for that lockdown clause and she really does take the kids and move away, or maybe he does end up in jail because Andalov frames him and that's how she ends up doing it, but... I agree that there's going to be some serious repercussions. I just don't really see Billions as the kind of show that kills off major characters, but I can always be proven wrong. Anything else that you're looking forward to in the weeks to come? Um, I do kind of want to see some more screen time for Sacker. I think that this is a good start this week with Icebreaker um, having her in charge of that Jose Lugo case, because I feel like for most of the season, she's just kind of been Axe's lapdog. You know, we haven't actually seen that much of her in terms of actual screen time, and I do think it would be nice to see her kind of come into her own a bit and not just basically following Chuck's orders. And obviously we get some of that resistance with the Jose Lugo trial, which she didn't even want to go through with, and then when the guards uh, killed him on the way to court. I think that... Perhaps this sets Sacker up for just like some kind of arc and for like for the rest of the season. Yeah, she's kind of a more graceful, elegant version of Chuck. She also has a bit more of an ability to make nice with the other side, I guess. Uh, Jock Jeff Coat loves spending time in her company. I believe that that was she the was Yale a Club, real right? delight. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, oh, it was a bad God. accent. Yeah, there's a lot of bad. <laughs> there's a lot of potential for bad accents. I would just like to. Uh, say you're welcome for not doing an Andalov accent while on this episode of the podcast. No guarantees for weeks to come. It's not too late. Oh, God, I really... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I've really been playing myself on these recapables with these accents lately. <laughs> but um, I think that brings an end to our Billions Reminiscing for the week. Thank you so much again for bearing with the delay. And we will see you again next week to see whatever happens to that money that Axe can't possibly lose. So thanks, you guys, for listening. And we'll talk to you next Sunday. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a -a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. songfinch.com.